what was that purchase process like? Where did they come from, right? So what channel? How quickly did they respond? How long was the sales cycle? What was the cost of sales? How did they move through to be a customer? How long did they stay? How much money did they spend? And how much margin did you make? Like that's the formula. Welcome to the morebusiness.com podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about ideal client profile. And joining me is Richard Brasser. He's the managing director of Carlton Richards. Richard, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Good to see you, Raj. Yes. Um, so Richard and I know each other from, I guess, maybe a one or two companies ago. And uh, he used to be with Boston Consulting Group and worked with some pretty big clients. And now he's actually uh, develops playbooks and is helping other companies really expand their uh, their business and grow. And so one of the biggest things is to know who you're, who you're trying to reach. And that's the ideal client profile. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Richard, to get started, uh, maybe just give a quick background on your, uh, your career path. Sure, absolutely. So in the early days, uh, I was focused in the enterprise software industry, and we had created a solution that was designed specifically for sales teams and mainly at very large customers. So it solved the problem of not only compliance, but helping salespeople access content that they could then post through social. And the whole goal was to make it very targeted for account acquisition or lead acquisition. So we would connect the dots between uh, your, your use of social and digital engagement and actual customers that came in and spent money. So it wasn't mm -hmm. about brand and reputation and some of those things. So it was very focused on revenue. The interesting part was that we had, which was a very uh, fortunate byproduct, the ability to work with some of the best companies in the world and their sales teams. You know, we stuck around to do implementation uh, with them hand in hand. So we really got to get an intimate knowledge of how do some of the best custom, uh, companies in the world, how do they, you know, how do they operate? How do they leverage their strategy? How do they leverage technology? All of those different things. And so that was a, a real natural evolution of moving to Boston Consulting Group, where I helped lead our next gen sales practice. So that was really taking the world's biggest companies and helping them uh, leverage some of the emerging technologies, leverage new processes new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking. So, um, you know, that was about five years and now I'm trying to bring it to a slightly smaller market. So smaller companies that, you know, even though those large companies have very similar problems that, you know, I found kind of middle market companies and companies in that growth stage, they're very, very exciting. But a lot mm -hmm. of times they, they maybe just don't know a few things they can do, which can really supercharge their business. And I'm really excited about yeah. being back in that realm. Yeah. And it, it's exciting because uh, a lot of the stuff that you learned about how these big companies uh, build that scalability is very applicable to these uh, smaller organizations um, with just a, a small few tweaks. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that today. And I'm excited because, boy, getting your ideal client profile right is that is, if you get that right, everything opens up. But if you get it wrong... Oh, you're going to struggle, right? Absolutely. That's the biggest, that's the biggest thing. So could <laughs> yeah. you break down what are the core components of an ideal client profile? What's, what's, uh, what's important there? So I, I might take a little bit of a left turn from, from the question. I think it's the right question, but yeah. what I want to try to focus on, you know, you, you can Google ICP and get lots of lists and different, different parts to it. And mm -hmm. I want to kind of focus on a few things that are, that are very unique, right? We all know that. The, there are a lot of different things when we can 
then when we can start to develop our, our inner or ideal customer profile, I like to think of kind of the base attribute or the base things in, in a kind of three buckets. I call them attributes. These might be things that differentiate that business from another. So things like the geography, where are they at? What market, what industry are they serving? How many employees do they have? Revenue, now total revenue, particular market position, um, you know, the support that they need, a purchase process, things like that. It's the, it's what a lot of people think and a lot of people finish in their ICP, right? It's these kind of firmographic, technographic, and even a new term that, um, that I learned a few months ago was, uh, was exographic, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But then the second is kind of behaviors. How does, how does the company behave? And I think this one often goes overlooked. And, and it's a very important one, especially when you're talking about your ability to sell to those clients. So things like, uh, you know, you can pick up on signals. How do they engage in the marketplace? Um, do they have thought leadership? Are they active in the marketplace? Do they go to conferences I and mean, things like that? Those are, those are all ways that, that allow you to align with maybe how do they purchase? You know, is it a very like GE capital, right? That's a very, um, arduous purchase process, right? It's, you know, it's a, a big committee and it's lots of people and that might, may not be what a smaller company needs. Or are they very nimble? Is the CEO the person that really is gonna make a decision? So those kind of things are, are really critical. When you get to what I call assets, those are things that are a little bit less tangible, but sometimes are super important, especially if you're at that kind of growth phase where you really wanna accelerate. And for me, those are, those are things like strategic fit, right? What market are we really trying to take over or having a, you know, a good footprint in, is it a new market? Is it a new, new product? Um, kind of what are the go to market synergies that we may have with certain kinds of companies are certain kinds of companies, how are they funded? What is their capital structure, right? Do they, are they going to be uh, very difficult to spend money or are they a little bit less worried about capital, maybe they're private equity backed or they're public, and that's a different different profile. Um, and then also kind of what's their growth, right? Is this, you know, in our situation, we were driving revenue with a software product. If a company was really focused on growth, that became a really good indicator that that's a good fit, um, as opposed to a company that's growing at four to 6% year over year over year, that's a slightly different different thing. But the, the kind of broken record warning that I'm going to have today is what I think is the most important aspect and everything starts to feed down into that. And that's really where you're focused on value. So there's a whole practice called value engineering and there's different parts to it, but it's questions like, how is, you, how is the company's use of your product? How are they going to gain financially, operationally? Uh, you know, what, what is it going to mean to them as far as how do they realize the value and then break that down for everybody in the organization as well. Right. And so the, you, ha you might have a financial buyer is your product going to help them make their, their numbers, um, goals. You have operational folks where are you going to make their day-to-day -day life easier? There are sales goals, et cetera, et cetera. So you can break down really, how does the, the value that your product why does it exist? How is it going to serve that, that customer? And when you focus on value, I think everything kind of cascades down into 
um, the other attributes and the, and the other pieces a little bit, a little bit nicer. And it really starts to drive the culture of your company, the culture of your sales organization, marketing support, et cetera. So I'm th pause those are, there. I know yeah. The, well, those are some pretty deep um, uh, questions that you have to ask about your market so that you gain a better understanding of why would they, why would they even buy from you? Right. And so oftentimes people will just say, well, I just need, I just need to pick up the phone and start talking to people and showing you a demo. And that's not really the, if you start <laughs> doing that, you're putting the cart before the horse. You really need to understand uh, the whole um, buying considerations. Why would someone even talk to you? So what does a document like this look like? Let's say you start answering all of the questions. You know, what, what does success look like for the financial buyer, the manager, the end user, all the different personas that collectively make up the, the influencers who would buy your product. And we're talking about enterprise sales here. So, uh, what's uh, what's uh, what does that final document actually look like? So it's so that's a good question. I, I think to clarify one particular thing, I think a lot of times what I see are companies being a little bit too simplistic about an ICP, meaning they try to come up with one that en encompasses all of their products or their services, and then and you literally could have a different ICP for almost every single product. And then you also have to really think about segmentation, right? And so I know we're going to cover some other topics and other, other sessions we're going to do, but if you're segmenting the market, your ideal customer in a middle market may be very different than an ideal customer in a, in a enterprise market based on your own capabilities, your own knowledge, your credibility in the marketplace. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, so let, let's just assume we've figured out a segment. We really understand that segment. We're selling to a particular, um, you know, geography, certain size company, et cetera. Then you're, you're filling in not just a document that outlines, you know, the other aspects of how that company buys, how it fits with your firm, et cetera. But really what you're doing is you're designing your entire go-to-market strategy from the first touch until you know, literally high-fiving a five-year LTV, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because... Yeah. And I think that at the heart of this starts to get your org model and your teaming model and things like that, which we can touch on in a second. But it really is thinking through, all right, from the very first touch, because if I go into a company, almost invariably, big, big or small, they have, you know, everybody says they need more leads, right? I, I rarely find they need more leads. What I find is that they need better leads that are better fit to what, what, what they're delivering from value. And so, so our, you know, our work on that is really focused on getting as much information and data, uh, from what's happened in the past. A lot of times that's where companies start, right. And that's another rabbit hole where we can go down and we get to kind of mm -hmm. technology and capabilities, but it's not just what happened in the past. And I'll have a good story in a minute about how companies make a mistake on that, but you know, you at least have to understand the historicals who has bought the quickest for the lowest amount of, of cost, who stays the longest is the happiest, et cetera, et cetera. And so outlining those particular aspects and then thinking about how does that permeate through the entire org design? So how does demand generation use that? How does your thought leadership and your blog touch on those characteristics that are your number one, most valuable thing you, you exist for? How, how, how do your team members hand off to each other? Right. Because, you know, the whole marketing's over here and sales is, you know, seven miles away. It just doesn't work anymore as, mm -hmm. as, as buyers, we become so much more informed and so much, you know, we expect a seamless process. 
So from first touch to customer success, all of that has to be woven together. And it's a really, actually, it's a really complex and comprehensive kind of 360 degree process, not just a document. It's a, it's everything. It's in your culture. It's in your, your, your operating principles, et cetera. But if you think about it as kind of the virtual cycle to where from the very first step to interacting with each part of your sales org through the, not only sales process, but then as an existing customer to renewal, to, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera, to them doing commercials for you. Um, I'm only right. in B2B, so I don't know anything yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the audience is, is B2B, but yeah. for the, you know, you touched on something really critical, which is um, basically ensuring that your entire team from different departments really is aligned because that goes to the heart of, uh, you know, land and expand strategies, account-based marketing, and really just having that customer that just keeps renewing year after year because they're having such a seamless, happy experience. Well, I mean, what do you do uh, to get your team fully aligned from all these different departments? What kind of coordinations are needed uh, and what could a CEO do to make sure that all of that happens smoothly? Yeah, there's a few different strategies, and I think they they are different. And I know we'll we'll start to parse out the difference differences between large organizations and some of the challenges, or smaller organizations, etc. There, I think there are things that you can do which are more structural, and there are things that you can do that are more manual, right? And so maybe I'll start with one of my favorites: is that the classic problem of a BDR is overqualifying leads because you know, that, that's what their, their metric is, right? So that's how <laughs> they get people, paid. Yeah. Yeah. Salespeople get <laughs> so, it. Mm -hmm. they, they go, these leads are, are not good. So they don't call them, mm -hmm. yeah. but the salesperson gets their own leads and lies to the people and tells them their product does everything in the world. Customer <laughs> success gets that customer. Mm -hmm. And, and is, you know, said Raj told you what it's. A <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I think anybody listening to this that has gone through the process, they're like, yep, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because so it happens to everybody. Yeah. It really does. It yeah. really does. And one of the things that we found to be very, very powerful, and we've done this across you know many different industries, customer segments, etc., is to organize the the sales the, the go to market team in pods, and that and something interesting happens right away because you can do this, like I said, manually. You can talk through how they need to communicate and how they need to be um, responsible to the next person in the in the cycle. But if you organize a pod where you have lead, lead generation, you have sales, maybe pre-sales, sales engineering, marketing, customer success, um, you know, service and support, and they're in one group and all of their KPIs, all of their, um, the ways that they make money all align to customer success, right? So the customers, um, you know, buy quickly for the least amount of money, stay the longest, et cetera. And when you have the kind of accountability to where if, if the customer success person is in my pod and I'm sitting next to them, you know, every, every almost every day, or at least every Monday mm -hmm. or Wednesday, mm -hmm. and it's immediate feedback. Like you said that our product does X, Y, and Z. We all know it yeah. doesn't, right? Yeah. <laughs> that gave me a really unhappy customer when we're doing the install and that's, that's when they should be excited. Yeah, And so yeah. just the org organizing principle of that is really powerful. But if you take that, you know, and I've gone into some, some big organizations and said, Hey, this is, this is the ideal way of doing it. And they said, there's no way we can do that quickly or yeah. easily. Yeah. So, but let that be a guiding principle. So you can virtually maybe through dotted line 
org design or just through through um, experience sharing, start to get people to understand the other roles. Because if if marketing understands, oh, this this is why salespeople either really like a lead or why they don't, or what what's a heartburn, what's not, they can start mm -hmm. to really have an understanding of the other roles within the company and start to figure out that they're on the same team serving the customer. That's it, right? They yeah. are delivering value for the customer. It is not about you making your number. Because if I'm a, a fantastic convincer, right? And I convince you to buy something, but then you churn and we spend all this time and effort and three months later or a year later, you're not a customer anymore. I am not doing the co company well and I'm not doing the customer well, right? That's why it always comes back to that value. Yeah, I think in a very small company, there's probably not a lot of, let's say, space between who you're right. talking to. So the, to the marketing and sales people, they could probably talk to each other a lot faster. But it's it's pretty quick as you grow, because when you grow, those silos start to form very quickly. Really and, and yeah, and sometimes, boy, that's just really tough. Oh, sales said this customer success said this, and it gets to be uh, that problem. So I like the idea of just kind of stirring the coffee a little bit and putting something right. here and something there and you get everybody sitting next to each other. So that's a great way to get team alignment. What about the, um, what about the way people structure compensation plans? I mean, that seems like that's another uh, point of uh, maybe a weak link point of failure. I don't know the right way to phrase well, it, but it's, it's one of the issues. I, I think what's interesting about it and, and in full disclosure, I didn't do a lot of, of compensation work. Um, a lot of it would fall in our lap because it's a, it, people will do what you compensate them to do. Right. Period. Uh, yep. We know that everybody knows that. I think the, if I look at all the other aspects in kind of capabilities and technology, et cetera, I think compensation has lagged behind as far as sophistication. Right. And so, you know, we, we, we know all the different classic models, right? Is it base plus commission plus spiff plus, you know, uh, uh, management by um, objective and MBO bonus. Those things are fairly um, pedestrian as far as how they incentivize people's behavior. I think mm -hmm. if you start to think about that, that org model, once again, as a, as a pod, you start to have the ability to have shared bonus pools, right? And so even folks that are not in the front lines making sales, you can have a group uh, kind of compensation that starts to it, it be delivered when the customer um, has a great experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like like I said, I've seen some unique strategies in um, in how uh, certain roles are are compensated. I think I've seen more things that I go in and say we shouldn't do that, right? Perfect, perfect. Or one example, a sales engineer at a particular company was literally compensated as a, uh, as a commission. And so when they, their product that they were an expert for was sold, then they got comped and there was, they had a quota. Well, as an expert, as a technician, you are, you are delivering your value by how much you know about it. And you should be 100% Switzerland, right? You should be mm -hmm. non-opinionated about which product. And, and, and where it really came out as a big problem, which is kind of a, you know, a strange situation was a, a salesperson was trying to construct a sale of five or six different products. Mm. And they may want to throw one product in for free. Overall, it's the best deal for the company. But yet yeah. this, this technician, the sales engineer didn't want there to be 
non-comped. So it's, yeah. you know, I, I think when you think about how people are compensated, um, I think, think it all the way down the rabbit hole because yeah. it, there's a lot more conflicts than you, than you think. Yeah. Um, you know, getting back to the point of nailing down your, your ICP to, to go from, you know, as the title of this podcast is going from vague to vivid. So, um, what kind of gaps do you often see as people go through and start asking these questions to their existing client base to inform what their future clients should look like, uh, prospects should look like? What are the, what are the gaps? Maybe some examples you can share about how people identify those gaps and how they fill them. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that when you think about big companies, small companies, there are very similar challenges. What's one of the more interesting ones to me is that I think the gap of only taking historical uh, data. So what has happened in the past mm -hmm. leaves out a huge opportunity for other markets, other customers, yeah. you know, so if you are, if you've been around a long time, maybe you have tried lots of different things, but the world is ever changing. I mean, one very large financial uh, tax preparer company had a, a an interest in growing revenue from new segments, new customer segments. But they said, but our ICP has identified this process, which identifies these kind of people as our customers. I said, well, you've done a pretty good job of going after them, right? <laughs> so you want this new ramp in revenue, but you, you want to do things the exact same way. I said, let's, let's think about this differently. Are there, are there, is there a customer base that absorbs information differently in a different place, gets different recommendations from, you know, maybe different professionals, right? It wasn't just their accountant. And so starting to think through where are those new opportunities? Where are those new, those new pools? It's kind of like, I remember when um, social selling, you know, started, I was, that was around at the beginning of that. And I used to describe it as, Hey, you're catching fish all in these ponds over here. There's, there's this really big pond that you have, you don't even have a line in, like you don't, you're not even communicating in it mm -hmm. and that there could be a lot, a lot, a lot of new customers. So I, th I think the gap of thinking through the windshield, as opposed to the review mirror is a, is a really, it's an energizing way of doing things. Um, because the gap of, uh, it kind of goes to, um, to pipeline management as well. Right. So. You know, you look at everything that's happened in the past and how are you going to refine that? Well, you're only going to refine it as good as it ever was, right? And I've seen, I've seen companies that have been around for 50 years and they're only as good as they ever were. Mm -hmm. And they'll never be five times greater than they ever were because it, that's just not their process. So when yeah. we would come in and talk about apply new, new data analytics, new ways of thinking, new markets, new strategies, like it really, it really blew the cover off because I mean, that's talk about vivid, right? You get yeah. new, new groups of customers that are buying that, that gets exciting. How do people find who they should interview if they haven't gone after a segment before? So that's an interesting question. I think there are, so this kind of gets down into the heart of, of targeting and some of your target strategy. And I think if you, if you have a, a culture of test and learn, I think you can take some, some very small probes and I, and I have one really interesting, um, it's an interesting for me. It's not probably interesting for, for everybody, but so there was a commercial, commercial lending, uh, commercial bank, and their entire strategy was a brick and mortar, right? So brick and mortar, you come in businesses, come in, take out loans. 
and and they were experimenting with a new um, uh, ability to to connect with people digitally. And but they were scared. They didn't want to put the resources into it. Didn't know if it would work. I said, "What? Why don't you just do something right in the middle? Which is take a market where you don't have a bricks and mortar, and try to engage a customer base there to see if there's interest." And do it purely out of a justifying a new brick and mortar office. And, but, but what you'll also find is that building the muscle of engaging your customers digitally is going to be something that you can then use everywhere. And you may even have, God forbid, a, a, an inside sales force that can actually transact and try to secure some of these, some of these loans. And that's exactly what happened. They so they went into, you know, different markets and found that there was a whole bunch of customers that were smaller, but more nimble, more agile. They looked for recommendations on communities and, and other kind of peer groups. And they started, instead of doing a $200 million loan, they were doing an $8 million loan, but they're doing bunches of them. And then mm -hmm. that could grow into getting them enough. And then they put in a bricks and mortar. So really doing kind of test and learn. I think other markets you can do I'm not the world's biggest fan, but, you know, community grew like, like, you know, take a, a group of potential customers and, and, and do a study. Uh, mm -hmm. We've done some of those before, but I just really, I really love having, it's kind of like Google had the take 8% of your time and try to figure out new products. And, you know, it's that innovation, you know, think through who, who has the attributes that would be even better served by our product. And I let's do a few tests in that. Yeah, I think uh, that's one thing that smaller companies could really learn from the methodology that larger companies use is they will not go out and build a whole new product line, marketing campaign, whatever it is, to a segment without testing that that segment would actually buy. And I think one of the mistakes I've seen many small companies do is like, I think that mar that market should absolutely buy what we let's go pursue it. And I got to say, I almost made that mistake. I did make it once or twice and I never make it again because now I know you don't actually build before you know you can sell it. So uh, small takeaway there for for what that's worth. Um, you mentioned something interesting because the, the way uh, you would uh, – approach selling a new segment uh, may be very different than the way you're selling another segment because the way that that segment buys. Um, but that also may mean that even the segment that's buying a certain way right now might be very different five years from now. So it evolves, you know, just right. like, for example, just it, nobody goes and buys every item of clothing in a retail store anymore. Half the shopping at least is probably done online. I know my wife says, I don't ever want to go to a store again. I just order it, return it, just a whole new way of buying, right? So that evolved. Um, what ways do you recommend companies monitor how their ICP is interacting with them so that they are ahead of the curve and they don't miss an opportunity, that they evolve with their ICP? Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of that, that constant evolution. And I think it's a tricky one because the standard, you know, my standard kind of position on it is engage your customers, get feedback from them. What do they wish you did? What do they wish you had? Was there a better way to engage you? Would they have, would they have missed you if not for, you know, X, Y, and Z? You have to have a, a, a healthy filter, right? And, and you can set up kind of the guardrails so that you can't, do the mistake that I've done a, a lot of times. And you just mentioned, you know, going after a market that you don't 
truly know and going all two feet in. Mm-hmm. I did that quite a, quite a, quite often. <laughs> um, I was in love with it, but I didn't realize that they were not our ICP. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you, you have to filter out, you know, customers will ask for everything. And it reminds me of um, two things. You know, there's there are lots of things customers will ask for that they may or may not really, really need. It's not in their core value, right? It's not the thing that's driving them to really be excited or a raving fan about your product. The other part is there are things also that customers will never ask for that might be the, you know, the, the best thing you could ever develop. And that that's the, you know, the, the old uh, quote from Steve jobs, which is, you know, no one was asking for an iPod, right? Right. (laughs) They're asking for, you know, better, Uh, you know, better records and things like that. But yeah. um, Yeah. So, but I think having that, that constant um, innovation culture, I think when it really starts to sing is like, think about that pod. Once again, when you get feedback from each different uh, role within the company, and you get very, very different things. The engineers will say, this feature is the coolest thing we've ever built. No customer cares about it. Or mm-hmm. they might have developed something that would be easy that customers would, it would change their entire, entire uh, experience. Uh, mm-hmm. Sales may have a different idea. God, if we just had this, it would make my selling easier. Marketing will have different, service different. And so you can take all of those and really start to kind of boil them down into what's the one or two new priorities that we'll take on this quarter and and we're going to test and learn from it right we're not going to go go two feet in you know we learned a hard lesson on that about about going into an industry where what what set us apart was our kind of ability to work in a very very large complex environment and the compliance required for that so if you had tens of thousands of salespeople all over the world different divisions etc then our product was really valuable if you were a small four person company, um, ours was not good at all. Right. And mm-hmm. So I had this brilliant idea to go sell to a bunch of really small companies uh, or single <laughs> operators that, that mm-hmm. um, didn't work too good. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. You really got to make sure you nail it. So, so that brings up the question, how do you know when you've actually nailed your ICP? Yeah. So, and that's, so this, this is when kind of the bridge to technology uh, analytics, reporting, you know, and kind of what tech are you running? Um, there are some really cool new advances. Yeah. I actually was just exposed to one called rev.ai. They do an AI driven, um, ICP, which is, which is pretty innovative. It's pretty neat. Um, and, and what they figured out was that the difference between, and this is that exo exographics, I think I'm, I think I'm saying it right. And, and the analogy they used was that Caterpillar and, you know, uh, I can't remember what the other one was, but um, you know, very, two companies that look very similar may buy very, very differently. And so when you have the analytics to really understand what was that purchase process like, where do they come from, right? So what channel, um, how quickly did they respond? How long was the sales cycle? What was the cost of sales? How did they move through to be a customer? How long did they stay? How much money did they spend and how much margin did you make? Like those, like that's the formula. And when this, that sounds, my gosh, you know, (laughs) when you say it, everybody's like, oh yeah, it sounds so obvious, but so few companies actually take the time to answer all those questions. Well, think about, think about a, yeah, I'm just going to make up an analogy is not going to be a good one, (laughs) but think about like, you know, 
offices all in a row with a with a view out the window and you're trying to trying to to get a view of what what does this whole scene look like and each person has this little vantage point and and i think that's what happens so often we talk about silos but you're saying hey you know what is driving marketing what mm -hmm. they want is clicks and and impressions and it's a well does that mean happier longer customers but i don't know all right. If they don't know, that's that's critical. Right. I did a project for a very, very large tech company, and we found that they were spending $100 million on lead generation, which led to zero customers. Now, that didn't mean oh. they weren't making no sales. Their salespeople were doing also their own lead gen. 99.9999% mm -hmm. of sales was coming through those. But they didn't oh. know it because they're, the way they did their funnel analytics it actually took the leads, the customers, uh, the salespeople generated and marketing and dumped them in the same bucket. And so it was about 12% came from that bucket. Well, yeah, but nobody had analyzed which one came from what. And mm. it wasn't like marketing was doing a bad job. They were doing beautiful stuff and they actually had tremendous impact on brand reputation, brand recognition, things like that. But on, like the visibility of breaking down those walls and those silos to understand mm. how somebody moves through and, and and how do they enjoy that process? Right? Like when mm -hmm. you know, we all hate, like we spent a ton of time, maybe with a BDR talking to them, telling them our problem, telling them what we need. And then all of a sudden they're like, this is great. I'm going to get Joni on the line and here you go. And Joni's like, great, Raj, how are you doing? How can I help you? <laughs> and we just start like, oh all over God, again. I just, yeah. I just spent 45 minutes telling Sarah, oh. you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. oh gosh, that's, and it's so unfortunate. Oh my goodness. When you when you describe the uh, all the transparency within an organization, which is not always there. In fact, many times it's just not even there, even in smaller companies. I've seen it. Um, well, let's say you got that ICP nailed. How does that help you with clarity and influence your entire go to market strategy? The answer might sound obvious, but I'll bet you've probably got some unique insights here. Well, it's so I'm, I, I, I'm going to steal one. Um, somebody informed me or, or I learned from somebody who was talking about, about corporate strategy. Um, and this was a, an instructor up at, uh, up at, uh, Harvard business school and, and his, his opinion about ICP. And then where do you go from there? I think that was the biggest, like, let's say you get one nailed, say, I really know my customer. I really know who I serve. Now I want to grow. And mm -hmm. I, now I want to, I want, I want to broaden the wings a little bit and, a lot of times what all of us do is they, they go like 40 degree difference, you know, or like way over there and they don't understand the market. They don't understand the customers. So the whole idea of taking your ICP and going literally one click, one click to either side, you know, what's something that's a little bit different and testing some of that. Right. So I might serve, you know, companies that are middle market companies, X amount of revenue, X amount of employees, et cetera. And here are the reasons why they buy. Well, who's, who looks like that? Who looks a lot like that, but they're not in that industry. And that's, that's where you really get, um, you're, you're doing less cycles of hunt or of kind of fishing around and trying to figure out what works. You know, if 90% of your attributes are the same, they just happen to be in a slightly different market. Um, that's gonna, that's gonna serve you really well. 
Very good. Richard, you know, I'm looking forward to our next topic, which is going to be on segmentation. We're going to do that in a different podcast. But I think right now, this is a lot of information about how you create your ICP and how you know if you've got it nailed down, because that will help you with your go-to-market strategy. I know you've got, uh, you've got playbooks that you've developed. How can people reach you? So the best way to reach is through carltonrichards.com. That's C-A-R-L-T-O-N-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S.com. Um, and that's probably easy to easy to get me. Uh, my phone number's on there as well. It's a it's a new consulting firm, so I'm I'm very excited about working with uh, some slightly smaller companies and um, and seeing some of the exciting results. Sounds very good. And I mean, the background you've got is very impressive, Richard. So I'd encourage anybody who's looking to really scale and expand their strategies. Uh, Richard's actually got some pretty neat playbooks and and concepts that will actually help you find new markets and go after them. So. Thank well, and you. A, and, and a big thank you to, to you to be a thought leader in the space. And, you know, I know when I was trying to, to grow and run a company, things like this, uh, having resources and thought leadership like you're doing, it's a it's a big deal. So thank you. And and um, I know everybody else out there appreciates it a great deal. Very good. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. We're going to see you on a future podcast. And I'm going to have Richard back to talk about how you actually create segments. That's going to be a pretty cool conversation. So stay tuned. Meanwhile. Great. Enjoy your day. We'll see you next time.